There's this group within the uh, Sangha that uh, meets and discusses discusses books. It's called a book group, <laughs> and and uh, they were reading this excerpt. For, or, well, they read the the book uh, "When Things Fall Apart" by Pema Chodron. Um, and if you haven't ever read that, it's it's really good. It's, it's worth worth your uh, worth your attention. One of the things she goes into there that oftentimes gives uh, practitioners a bit of pause, and indeed I think gave the, the book group a little bit of pause, was this, was this idea of um, hopelessness. And once you totally give up hope, absolutely give up hope, you're, uh, you're in pretty good shape. So I think the, the quote actually... Um, uh, Michael, we thought it, uh, we would uh, put in uh, a plug for some potential Dharma talks as inspired by the book, inspired by the chapter called Hopelessness and Death. We thought that a talk about hopelessness would be interesting and inspiring. <laughs> this quote, completely giving up hope is the beginning of relaxing into who we are, captures the thrust of the chapter. So... I wanted to touch on that. I think there's some really cool stuff that kind of came out of the email that kind of summarized some of the stuff that was going on. And I, I frankly, don't hang on to this, was very impressed uh, that, that the, the dig into this book, which can be kind of difficult, after all, it's talking about, you know, when disasters strike, how is it that we can use the teaching uh, in a way that helps uh, at least mitigate suffering? So what I would say in relationship to hopelessness is that if you consider the fundamental aspect of this teaching is uh, unpacking a present moment awareness, meaning that we're no longer bound by the psychological, by psychological time or, or the past, our past, or our future, that we're not clinging to memories and you could also say we're no, not clinging to stuff that might come in the future. Stuff that might come in the future that we cling to is what we call hope. So what Pema is talking about here is let go of hope, just like one might let go of memories. And what do you have? You have an openness to the present moment. Now, hope is a really um, fascinating thing because it's usually what keeps us going on in times of great trial. When we're really going through it, it's the idea that, ah, things will get better. And indeed, they may. Or they may not. But the point is, they will not stay the same. 
no matter what. So oftentimes what we find is that we go through the cyclical experience of being where we can have good times and bad times. And we can have amazing times and we can have living horror. And we can have stuff that's okay and stuff that's not so bad and everything else. And what any of us who has lived um, through our, at least through our teen years, even better if it's through our 20s, is we start seeing patterns in our lives. We start seeing that life has its ups and its downs, its way ups and its way downs. And sometimes it can happen in an hour. And other times it can happen in a day where we go through one cycle. And other times it's like, man, this is awesome. We've gone for a whole month or two where things are really kind of chugging along nicely. And then the universe somehow conspires to pull the rug out from under us in the most creative ways. Didn't John Lennon say, life is what happens? Wait. Life is what happens when you're making other plans? What's the line, folks? Anybody? I know. We all know it. Everybody's going, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Keep going. Yeah, yeah right. Um, uh, the, it'll come to me. The point is that if we, can, if we can look at the idea, as crazy as it sounds, of giving up hopes, that some, giving up hope that some external savior or savior situation will arise in the future, that allows for us to then really unfold into what is right now, presently. And what's happening in the present, actually, is all we ever have. And the minute we start developing a deep familiarity with that fundamental reality is the minute all sorts of stuff begins to unfold. We begin to start to see with a different set of eyes, greater clarity begins to kind of unfold. And we have this amazing capacity to begin a spiritual journey. And all spiritual journeys begin with one very significant step. And until this step is taken, the spiritual journey is merely an egoic negotiation. And that one step, very simple, is forgiveness. Maybe it is that we forgive our partner, our ex-partner. Maybe we forgive our situation. Forgive God. That's a good one. Forgive God. Forgive ourselves. We rarely do that, but once you get into that space, man, all sorts of stuff begins to kind of unfold. We can begin to look at this on our own. Where is it that we're holding? Where is it that we're not forgiving? And to forgive is to open. Where is it that we're not opening? Can you feel it in your body? Closure, you know, tightening, tensing up. I remember always being around uh, my teacher, uh, one of them at least, and I was always, I was always tensing up around him. It made me so nervous. Um, and he's kind of a funny little man, but uh, uh, he's 
it, it was like there was no hiding. And so no matter what I was saying, doing, or talking about, that he was looking right through to the core of who I was. And it took a lot of getting used to, but and a lot of resentments built up. And I looked for ways to not like him. I looked for ways to think, oh, he's not real, he's not authentic. And it was a very powerful exercise because what I could start to see as more, I spent more and more and more time with him in a monastic situation, which was very intimate, uh, I started to see, my goodness gracious, he is human, but he is also precisely what I need to be able to more skillfully come at life from this moment. I got lucky, really lucky, that I could have somebody who could uh, kick my proverbial dharma butt all the time without even trying. And so much of that work was about giving up hope. And I know that sounds funny. Uh, egos need hope. What is beyond the ego is beyond the need for hope. It's already completely fulfilled. Nothing is lacking. So imagine that if it helps your mind, it helps your ego kind of get teased into this space a little bit. Imagine an approach to living that goes so far beyond the need for any type of external validation or any, anything that you can, you can hang on to. And instead you start recognizing that you don't even need to reach. It's all here already. For egos, or separate self-senses, for me's, as a teacher called amigo, uh, not amigo, but ego, um, they need hope. They need things to reach for, and they need to find things they can push against. And so one of the neat things, especially, you know, if it, if it is, uh, if it comes up again in the book group or in Dharma conversations that you may have with Dharma friends or not, recognizing that when we are truly undivided, then we are truly fulfilled. And at that place of true fulfillment, there's no struggle. There's no resistance. There's just being. And even that sense, that experience of complete and total peace, satisfaction, if you will, that state is temporary because there will be something else thrown at us that will jar us into the recognition of, oops, <laughs> I, <coughs> I'm alive, I'm human. And that's kind of the, the gift, is that we get to, as I always say, surf these waves of being. When they increase, when they decrease, rise, fall, we're right there for all of it. The more we are exposed to this deep, penetrating relaxation, this great openness where we 
no longer need to cling to any type of hope, and we no longer need to avoid any aspect of the very past that got us into this place to begin with, we can surf more easily. And the promising news, as long as you don't hope for this, is that the waves tend to settle down. They don't kick us around as much, even, even the big ones. We get to be much better surfers. It just kind of happens spontaneously and naturally. So tonight, what I'd like to do is practice that. Just practice being with whatever is and carry that as a homework assignment with you through the week, no matter what's going on. You know, whatever kicks you. Get curious about that, you know, as opposed to reacting, kicking back. Let it happen. Study it. Let yourself be the experiment. Let the self be the laboratory. Explore it. You may start feeling anxious. Okay, explore that anxiety. You may start feeling really, really nice. Explore that. Don't look for reasons, but just feel it. Know it. Be right there next to it. And tonight we'll do that as we sit. We'll be right there next to whatever is happening. We're not going to hope for a good meditation. Because it's already perfect as it is. It's giving you exactly what you need to practice with. We are all universe. We are all miraculous manifestations of infinity itself. And so is everything else. This means we are one. This means we are part of a deep singularity dance as variances within that singularity. practice is this recognition that if we can have an awareness 
of our mental experience and we can have an awareness of our physical experience, that awareness itself is our freedom. So freeing ourselves, freeing, if you will, awareness from the mental and the physical frees us. The egoic mind, the ego, the mind, either one of those words we could use, um, it's got, its job is to keep us from discovering that freedom. Its job is to, to help keep us contracted. And so what we can find is when we are on one of these journeys, on this path to freeing ourselves, from, or excuse me, I should say, when, when, when awareness begins to start to free itself from the mental and physical experience of being, the ego does whatever it can to bring us uh, into enough pain to cause a deep contraction. So, if you're, and you can always kind of test to see like where you are in the whole, uh, in, in the whole experience by testing how much resistance you have to whatever is going on. And I use this example a lot, but if you're feeling resistance to anything that's happening, that resistance is uh, ego brushing up against this great invitation from the universe to let go. The ego will not let go. Its job is to not let go. Its job is to hang on desperately, especially to something like hope. So this idea of hope hopelessness as being our, our uh, form of, of, uh, of practice to help us walk into, through, and then be informed by a deep freedom. Actually, really great teaching. And as frightening as it might sound, it is indeed quite inspiring. Imagine if you could go through your life without having to worry about, I, I say this a lot, but I think this is quite true. Imagine if you lived a life really, really, really without fear. You had no fear. And not like, you know, you're, you know, you're a lieutenant badass or something, you know, just walking around being fearless, but rather being fearless at a real deep psychological and spiritual level. Knowing full well that you, you, you'll be able to withstand whatever comes your way. if you can meet it fully. Where things get dicey is when we don't meet them fully, we meet them partially. And when we meet our experiences partially, um, oftentimes the residual of that experience, of the partial experience, begins to clot and clog the free flow of our psychological well-being. And then this becomes something we have to process or deal with in ways that therapists can help, especially if they're good, and they can make worse, especially if they're bad. Okay? Um, I equate this, where I'm, what I'm touching on right now, uh, is very similar to my um, stream an analogy. Uh, I forget who it was that, that 
gave this to me, but I thought it was so cool, where if in meditation what we can do is think of our work as really stilling the waters of life, that we tend to just rush so much. A great experience for me was as a very young person after, it was very early, early in this, I believe it was April or May, I was up in Yosemite and I was at the base of Vernal Falls and the power of that water coming over those rocks and so forth was so moving. It was, I, I, I remember just as a very young boy kind of feeling almost like moved to tears. It was that powerful, just this roar, absolute roar of this water coming down. And uh, if we are in a deep meditative practice, it causes that roar to quiet down. The velocity of the water starts to slow. And we begin to see something with great clarity. We can see right down to the bottom of whatever that, that river is. And the concomitant of being able to see to the bottom of the river is we can also see what is obstructing the free flow, what is clotting, what is getting in the way. And then you just have a choice. You have the courage and the strength to move it. And no one can answer that question except you. No one. No teacher can get you to do it. You're the one that has to do it. You have to take the step. Um, but being able to get really clear on what's obstructing the flow uh, comes after this idea of forgiveness. We start to see, when we begin to forgive ourselves, we begin to forgive the situation. Now we're kind of raw, but we're ready to actually begin stilling the waters of this, of this flow of life and we can begin to see more clearly and we can then choose what the most appropriate response is to what we see, what we feel, what we can ascertain and apprehend. And there is so much uh, availability in terms of freedom when we can witness that experience. When we, we learn as I was talking about freeing awareness, you know, when, when awareness frees itself from our physical and our mental states, we are free. This happens whenever we become truly aware of what is going on. We begin to experience the physical body as an experience, and we begin to experience the mind as an experience. We can watch the mind, we can watch the body, the body as an experience, the mind as an experience, what is this thing that can view the experience? It has no form. It's just awareness itself. Awareness unhooked from body and from mind is freedom itself. And what tends to kind of goose us into this place, more often than not, is a sense of connectivity. And this is one of the reasons why Sangha is one of the triple treasures in Buddhism. We have Buddha, which is the teacher, or highest self. Every one of you is a teacher. Every one of you has a highest self. Buddha, Dharma, which is the teaching. Every one of us is getting Dharma all the time. Teaching is showing up. All the, we're always given something to work with. 
and then Sangha, the last of the triple treasure. Mm -hmm. Triple treasures. Sometimes I forget my plurals. Okay, it's the last of the triple treasures. It is about the group, the assembly. Um, you can't do this alone. And the minute we do try to do it alone, all we're doing typically is just reifying ego's grip on its own contraction. Then we are back to square one. And then we have to forgive again. And we get right back onto it. Back onto that conveyor belt. So, um, this gets hard. This process can get really, really hard. I think for those of us who really struggle facing our own discomfort in this way, often become, uh, I talk about this fairly frequently, become addicted to stuff as a way of ameliorating, mitigating, or easing this pain that we feel being alive. And we try to anesthetize ourselves with great care. Uh, it can be a number, <coughs> any number of things that we use to distract ourselves from meeting our uh, impulse to awaken. But it's very real. And it's something to consider. What are you addicted to? Maybe you're very, very lucky you're not addicted to anything. Okay? Maybe you're addicted to something that, on the face of it, might be kind of healthy. Exercise, maybe. I'm just making this up. Maybe you're you're super addicted to incredibly um, those incredibly tasty kale chips. Love those things. Put the yeast on them and so forth. And just right there. <laughs> the new spinach. <laughs> I felt so bad for this, this poor guy. I I learned more. I think the great. Sangha for me in the last last couple of months has been my gym, and um, the behaviors that I'm seeing in the gym uh, are absolutely absolutely just so provocative in, in some really really cool ways, and, and more often than not, really they, they elicit a great deal of hilarity uh, uh, at other people's expense, of course. So just goes to show you how truly Buddhist I am. Um, uh, kidding aside, these, these, these people, everybody's working really hard, you know, trying to just fight against gravity. You know, one guy was talking about his, he was kind of cute. He's just he's saying, it's like the mudslide. Did I tell you guys about the, the mud? He called it his mudslide. <laughs> you know, I used to have. These pecs and shouldn't, it's like a mudslide. And he's got this <laughs> gut right here. He's working on it, you know. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the other individual who's quite a bit younger, he's probably in his early 30s, mid-20s, early 30s, and he is absolutely beastly in terms of how cut he is, how muscular, and how absolutely inflexible his entire you know, it's, it's like, you know, this type of thing. Just, and, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, the, I, I have always kind of looked at the definition of youth is flexibility. And, you know, what happens? What happens when we become so in 
mesh and so addicted to, let's say, something that would otherwise be considered healthy, that our clinging to it actually it becomes its own poison. remember a gentleman named Jim Hicks who wrote the book called Running, and the poor guy died early of a heart attack, you know? I mean, this is great, great book, and really inspired an entire, you know, generation of runners and everything, boom, you know? The irony of it, it's so intense. Um, And so I think this speaks to this idea, one of the great ways of forgiving ourselves in our day-to-day practice is to make sure we live lives of balance. That we're not lost in our own internal rigor. That we don't indulge that internal aspect of ourselves that's all about control, management, discipline. And that we also don't give in to that aspect of us that's just soft, sloth-like, lazy. We refer to that in Zen teaching sometimes as the difference between those two approaches is the Zen of the ancestors, which is the ass kick, inner Nazi kind of thing. And then you have grandmother Zen, which is, oh, you don't feel like meditating this morning? Okay. (laughs) Sleepy. It's cuddly warm in bed, isn't it? This guy, this guy who's he's on my floor in the in this dorm at the at the Zen Center, and I could he every every once in a while I hear this kind of like wake up wake up wake up, and I'm thinking wow there's some Zen going on somewhere that's that's pretty interesting and I found out that this guy he uh, he really struggled with sleep debt. You know, he was always feeling sleepy, and so I think he had some type of apnea type situation where he was really, really, really struggling with the wake up at, you know, 4.15, and, and uh, so what he would do is I just started to kind of, feel, you ever had that experience where the alarm goes off and you're there and you, then you're kind of like, <laughs> but what he would do is he, when he would notice that he would go into that space, he would then start yelling, which of course the rest of us love. Um, long and the short of this of this idea here is though that we truly give up truly surrender to what is and this frees awareness from our physical and our mental uh, states and when we can just kind of relax in that awareness itself we fundamentally and rather spontaneously become uh, apprised of a really massive shift in how it is we can meet our world. It's a world that is no longer uh, mired in anything. It's no longer predicated on a rather permanent state of sadness or happiness. It's about recognizing the temporary nature of all things and how everything depends on everything else and how everything ultimately is this spirit in action, this infinity moving 
or as Adyashanti might say, emptiness dancing. And we're part of it. We are part of that big divine party. Um, and that, when our, when our center of gravity goes from a place that's egoic and contracted into this kind of expansive, open flow state, everybody benefits. Everybody benefits. And there's no need to be hopeful in that place because there's a deep resonant, resonant completion that's already in existence. Already there. That's why we sometimes say everybody's always awake. Already, they just don't know it. We begin to become familiar with this thing that's always been there. Nothing to attain. We just unfold consciously. And then we let that practice begin to settle and stabilize. We start with forgiveness. That's hard. We start with forgiveness. And then we keep going into this place of becoming deeply aware of body and mind. Again. And again. hopelessness, surrender, and letting go interchangeably. Yeah, I think the thing that, we, that the baggage that we carry with the word hopelessness, Don, is that hopelessness sounds tremendously negative, nihilistic, ugly, frightening, and so forth. Letting go, on the other hand, is one of those kind of value-neutral, yeah, letting, maybe it's even value pie. <laughs> letting go. I mean, I don't know, I think it depends on the place one is in, because letting go I mean, you ask, give an example, you ask uh, a college, somebody who's just graduating from college, you tell them to let go, and they're going to be like, mm-mm, <laughs> let go, are you kidding me? That's how I, that's how we did this. I mean, we can think back to our own experiences, perhaps uh, anyone in this room might have an example within where it's like, oh man, that's, that's where you're hanging on. Um, Letting go gets really frightening in, in that place. But I do agree with you that it's a little bit easier than hopelessness. Yeah. Uh, hopelessness, though, um, the way that, that Pema uses it, which I like so much, is kind of this flirt, kind of this tease of like, the minute, the minute you can really give in to hopelessness and the fact that you're going to die, everything takes off from that moment. You know? Well, she's absolutely 100% right. I think it's particularly difficult in many respects for some people to hear that or take that in with any type of, um, uh, does, those, those phrases don't have a lot of magnetism psychologically, let's put it that way. And so as much as I think the teaching is spot on and very accurate, I think it can be harder to digest. But I think her pills can be some of the best that we can ever take because she calls it, calls it as it is. But yeah, I think you could. You could. You could use those words in many respects interchangeably. Mark. Uh, describe again what a good 
therapist does and what a yeah, a good therapist and a bad. Yeah. Uh, what a good what a good therapist typically does is uh, uh, they put us in touch with our hearts and minds, where and they get they get particularly good when they can help us develop perspective on both, where they can help us by asking us questions so that we can uncover on our own what it means to no longer be locked into certain patterns of destructive thinking or behaving. And what I think a bad therapist does is they help us indulge those qualities oftentimes. I mean, let's put it this way. A bad therapist could do all sorts of really awful stuff. But I think that one of the things that, that... that from where I sit, that I, I call into question in terms of the, the not so the modern canon of psychotherapy is where a psychotherapist just has the patient indulge their story. And they be, in other words, they begin to believe their own quote unquote press releases, and they can begin to indulge their victimization. They can begin to indulge these these qualities that don't help them heal. They help them feel right about how they feel or how they have behaved, or how. And I think that's that's an important first step. But a bad therapist, I would say, to just you know kind of put a slightly finer point on this, keeps us there. They don't help us shoot through into this place of opening. Um, I hope that kind of makes sense. And is there any? Any bad therapists out there, I'm sure they'll stop listening to this <laughs> podcast forever. Right? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I use the word compassion several times mm. in the Senate. Yeah. Uh, and you specifically said compassion. And I'm just wondering exactly what is, what is a deep contraction that I yeah. refer to? Yeah. Uh, I know it's, I yeah. So a contraction is exactly that. It's a squeeze. And um, metaphorically, we squeeze around certain ideas as human beings. And uh, um, so some aren't such deep squeezes. Some, some, an ego's job is to be the squeezer. So self-sense, mind, Ego and squeezer. Those are the four. I'm going to now use the word squeezer. <laughs> the, uh, the squeeze, though, that becomes most intense. We have light ones that would be like, I, 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 I like being on time in my life. I got some squeeze around that. I got some contraction around being on time. And I don't like it when people waste mine because I don't have a lot. And so if someone shows up 20 minutes late for an appointment or something like that, it, it puts strain on the rest of my day and, you know, whatever. And so I, I, I tend to contract around that. But push, coming to show, that's fairly light, okay? What's a, what's, a, what's a deep contraction? A deep contraction would be something that is a, an assumption of truth that we carry with us all the time without even thinking about it. Normally unconscious. Normally 
a tremendous lack of awareness uh, surrounds a deep contraction. So an example of a deep contraction would be all the things that are implied by this one very simple word, I. What is I? It's just one letter, actually, but it symbolizes I. Or in German, we'd say ich, right? Ego, if we're speaking Latin. So what is this I? Well, the whole Buddhist teaching centers around kind of peeling that apart really looking at it, and you start saying, see, experiencing this. It ain't there. There isn't any, anything substantial there. There are actions that this I, or separate self-sense, does. It clings to its past. It clings to hope, right? It's a clinger, and it squeezes everything it can to keep it protected against the offering of the present moment. So it's continually a war with the now, so to speak. And it does it by squirting off in either direction, past or future. So that would be a deep contraction, because most of us go through life without even paying any attention to that. We can pay attention to our preferences. Preferences might be a good way of describing kind of a, light, a lighter contraction as opposed to a deep, deep contraction, or shallow contraction as opposed to a deep contraction. Does that kind of make sense? Did you want to follow up? I am trying to read you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think you're right. I think when you feel pain, you are feeling a contraction. Okay. And the the interesting thing about Pain is, pain is intensity that we contract around. When we don't contract around intensity, it's just intensity, not pain. And so I remember talking to, uh, to my ex uh, after you know, one of those moments where like, we're holding our, our new child and, and the other one's asleep. And, and I remember asking her, it's like, you know, what was that? What does that feel like, you know, just having this thing fly out of your body and, and you know, it didn't fly, actually. Um, but I remember asking her, and she was, she was really cute about it, and she said, uh, and she said, well, you, I just got to this point where it's just like, <laughs> whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and, and, and I, that's been consistent as I've spoken to other close friends about childbirth and everything, it's very similar. It's kind of it got to this point where it's just like, okay, there was nowhere to go. You couldn't hide from that one. And so similarly, we have situations in life when we, when we give in, just like we might when any of us is giving you know, birth either to an idea, metaphorically, or physically to a child, there is a point where we just open. That's, that's, there's a freedom there. The non-resistance, yet we're still deeply participating. Of course, if I were giving birth to an actual child, I would want every drug imaginable to bring it. And then I would practice with that drug. 
side of the room tonight? That's it. <laughs> we only have stage, right? David, nice job, man. Your team thanks you. Say just and I, like and I don't, again. I don't mean to mean. Oh no no. Gotcha. It, it's personal. I mean it, it would apply to lots of situations. Everybody feels like they're superior to. Yeah, I don't think. Well, so let me let me the the your your words. I want to make sure I can I can uh, parse through them real carefully because it's not that there's a superiority. It's that there is a training. That's it. That I went through. And I'm trying to share it with you in a way similar to how a piano teacher might teach someone who's trying to learn how to do piano. I've been through it. I don't think I'm any more adept or less adept than anybody else who teaches. It. Okay, I'm more adept than some and less adept than others, but it's like, you know, it, it, that... I, I didn't mean to contrast it to other people who are... Teachers. Teachers or have done the same thing to you. I, Well, to the world in general, I, I hear again, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think maybe the difference is that um, the vast majority, I guess, of the planet sees itself as being divided and separate, and typically they're fear-based in their approach to being in the world. And I would say that my training has allowed me, over years and years and years, and lots of Sashins and sore knees and sore back and you know tears and everything else has allowed me to kind of see through a lot of that for me. And um, then in 2001, I had some people say, "Hey, do you feel like teaching a meditation class?" And I said, "No." And they kept hounding me, and eventually it turned into this. But. I don't think there really is much difference at all between me and you or anybody else in the room. I just have had some training that allows for me to speak in a way that hopefully can be helpful. That's it, you know? The, the attainment, and I guess, I guess we could call it that, I just think it gets kind of silly because I don't feel it's like I reached anything. I felt like I let go of everything continually and was in kind of this scenario that allowed for more and more and more letting go to happen. And so that became more of an orientation as opposed to what had been before in me, which was a highly pronounced grab, 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 grab. Am I making any sense at all? 
That's why I emphasized it wasn't personal to you. Oh. <laughs> so I kept personalizing. I just, I guess, another way to, to ask is, is um, from my own point mm -hmm. of view, you know, I practice this, practice some other stuff. Right. Do it better. Some things, this is hard to compare, but some things I do better than other people. Uh -huh. And then, and that's undeniable. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem like you want it if you're in a state where you're letting go uh -huh. of as much as desires to let go of. It doesn't feel, I don't know how to deal with the fact that I say, oh, partly, oh. I'm, let, I'm able to let go of all of this stuff, and you're not. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you're, you're still voting for Donald Trump or something. Right. Exactly. And and so and so when we go into that space, what we're doing is we're recognizing how partial our practice has. It's only taken us partway there because if we feel any resistance at all, you know, whether they're Trump supporters or or whatever, there's we have more to let go of. As, just like they do. So it's, a, it's compassion. Yeah, for self and other. Yeah, whenever, yes, and that's, a, that's the short answer, yes. And I, I'm sorry if I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand your question to the point of like, it's not about me, but it's about a teacher that, or somebody who has an area of expertise or skill, okay, um, that they're, giving it back or paying it forward or whatever is uh, uh, hopefully within their wheelhouse because that's how we enrich the entire human experience. And that is the Dharma. The Dharma is about giving. It's about being helpful. Helpful is probably a better way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Got time for one more? Easy, only easy questions. <laughs> Britt. Then you, then Britt. Okay. Grandma Zen. Yeah. Are you, are you are you clinging to the word? I am clinging to that. Could you let go of it, please? I can. Then we'll talk. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the grandmother Zen. <laughs> if, you did, if you don't like grandmother Zen, um, think of something that is that ba babies what? Panda bear. Panda bear Zen. Yeah. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> yes, that word. Whatever whatever type of uh, whatever connotes within you um, an enabler. All right, um, and. Uh, I had two grandmothers, neither of whom were enablers at all. They, they had some grandmother badassery about them. I just found out that my father's mother learned how to fly a biplane at age 12. <laughs> she started with a crop duster, like learned how to do, and, and the, her mother had no, you know, evidently, I had no idea what to do with my daughter, you know. 
what, learn how to fly, whatever. I just thought that was so cool. Anyway, yeah, grandmother's then. Not that kind of grandmother's then. Brittany, how are you? Good. Good. Long. Yeah. Um, Good to see you. Okay. I would say acceptance is forgiveness light. Forgiveness is when you really, you bow to whatever that unforgivable is, and you really do forgive it. And that means you've got to look at the unforgivable. You have, you have. I'm sorry? And then you can decide whether or not, are you saying you can forgive someone, and then always still be okay with that person? You don't have to go hang out with them. But a forgiveness of them means that you're no longer carrying any of their residual um, impact any longer. So it's one of the most healing things we can do, even if the unforgivable has happened. Even if the most heinous, awful thing has happened it, because some, and somebody else has perpetrated it or whatever. Until we actually can get to the point where we can forgive that heinous, awful act, we are still carrying what they foisted upon us. So accepting is like, yeah. Okay. Accepting is like, okay, all right, okay, it happened. Forgiveness is like, I bow to what is holy in you because we share that. Acceptance, uh, we might call, we might call it um, radical acceptance. Forgiveness is radical acceptance right down to the roots. Start small with that. That's my recommendation. Forgiveness is something you don't want to like go, you know, forgive. Don't start with Genghis Khan or Pol Pot. You know, <laughs> don't don't go there. Start with start with something that's small and then work build up and make and usually the one at the end is self. No, no, no. You got to accept that they're a slob. You got to accept that they're a slob first, and then let their slobbishness begin to become, through forgiveness, become something playful. It's something, it's like they are creating with their sloppiness. Now, having said that, it's also within, you are within your rights as. Uh, a Dharma practitioner to not only practice non-attachment but to, the, to their sloppiness, but to also practice non-attachment to silence about saying, articulating your need. And in between there, usually there's a negotiation, there's a ground that can be met. You bet. Thank you for coming.